every time I think about explaining things or writing things down, I see new connections between math and the world that I hadn't thought about before, that that I love because I really think that math is everywhere. And I say this, and I but I hold good to it because I really do see math in everything and everywhere. And every time I am trying to think of how to explain something in an interesting, compelling and possibly amusing way to non-mathematicians, I realize more and more ways that math helps me understand the world. And then I want to share that with everybody. Hello, welcome back to I Want Our Job, the podcast. I'm Paulina, and today we're speaking with Eugenia Chang. Eugenia has built a portfolio career where she combines the areas she loves most, math, piano, and education. Eugenia has a PhD in pure mathematics, and she's a scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. Eugenia also performs as a concert pianist. She has written the book Beyond Infinity, her second book about math, and she works to develop math training and curriculum. She also does research in math within higher dimensional category theory, and she writes about math for media publications. If you're thinking, oh, I don't know about this show, this is too much math, don't stop listening because Eugenia has a talent for showing how math relates to our world. We talk about the beautiful, mysterious intersections of math, science, we discuss art and spirituality, and Eugenia shares how she got on this path how her parents encouraged her early love of math and music. We discuss Eugenia's advice for encouraging kids to enjoy math. And there's also some great tips for those of us who have math phobias. Hint, don't tell them about your math phobia. Eugenia shares how she walked away from a conventional path to create a career where she could contribute more. And this is just such wise and simple advice. Eugenia suggests we find what we are really good at and then find how to use our talents in the best possible way to contribute to society. Eugenia is so enthusiastic and encouraging of us to try math, to look at it differently, to be curious about it. Her enthusiasm is contagious. We think you'll love this conversation, including Eugenia's thoughts on the concepts of infinity, how math and drunk cooking are similar, and so much more. Here's Eugenia describing her jobs. is a great question because I have so many things on the go at the same time and I love it like that. So I teach math at the School of the Art Institute which is really my only regular job and that is as scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago which is a liberal arts school but it's an art school so all the students are art students and I teach math there which is really fun and I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. I also write books, so I've written two books, How to Bake Pie, which is from two years ago, and Beyond Infinity, which came out last month. So I do a lot of public speaking related to those two books, uh, either to the general public or to schools or at universities, often it's universities who have invited high school students in to see that math is cool. I also work with teachers, so I do a lot of Uh, The rest of my work is freelance work, really. So I work with teachers. I do workshops with teachers to show uh, projects that can be done in the classroom. I also am currently teaching a mini course to math teachers in New York as part of the Math for America program, which is a really amazing program to encourage 
uh, high school teachers to advance their actual math knowledge. So I'm doing that. I've also been commissioned to make some art. So uh, we're nearly at the installation stage of my mathematical artwork at Hotel EMC2 in Chicago, which is celebrating the intersection between art and science. So that's my art project that's going on. I also, I'm a pianist, so I play concerts and I teach piano a little bit. Mostly I play music with singers, classical music singers, and I run the Liederstube, which is a not-for-profit organization in Chicago, which brings classical music to a wider audience by making it very informal and accessible and not on a stage. And it's more about sharing it in a sort of party environment. I also perform concerts with singers. I recently came back from Missouri where I did a concert with a singer there. I'm doing one in Chicago this week. And so that's a range of things I do. I also still do research in category theory, higher dimensional category theory, which is the very abstract research that I do. And I also write columns. I have a monthly column in the Wall Street Journal called Everyday Math. Uh, I wonder if that's all the things. Well, there's sort of more small, small things that, that make my, as I like to call it, my portfolio career. I, I, well, amazing. And when I first heard you just describing your portfolio career, I was just blown away. And we could easily talk for an hour about everything that you just mentioned. <laughs> but um, let's just start. I'm curious, um, when did you decide, when did you know that you were going to study math and pursue it as a profession? I knew I was going to study math from a really very early age. I think um, when I was five, math was already my favorite thing along with the piano. I always knew that math and piano were my favorite things. And I somehow knew I wanted to be a mathematician, although I, I have no idea how I knew what that was. And I don't recall what I thought that was either. And the funny thing is that even if I, whatever I thought it was, I'm sure I didn't imagine it was this because no one probably would have imagined this because I've made this up. Um, and I just knew I loved it. And my mother was the one who showed me how cool it was and how exciting it was. And she's somewhat a mathematician. And I don't know, maybe I thought she really was a mathematician and I just wanted to be like her, which would be a thing that could happen. I definitely mistakenly thought she had a PhD. This is a funny story where I knew I wanted to do a PhD because my mother had a PhD, except that my mother doesn't have a PhD. She used to work uh, when I was very little. She had a job for a year doing the accounts for a, a, a gas station, I think, called PDH. And I thought she had a PhD yeah. because of that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, and I'd love to know what were some of the ways that she made you love math. And I'd also love to know more about your, your family and how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? I grew up in I grew up in Sussex, which is a rural county in England in the southeast. It's on the coast. It's quite near London. So in American terms, it's basically in London because England is so small. But in England, it counts as the countryside. And so it was rolling hills. It was a little village, very beautiful, quintessential English countryside, lots of sheep. Hmm. And I... Um, my mother worked in London in the city, so she commuted to London on the train with a briefcase, which which was very unusual at the time. Uh, but I didn't think anything of it because I thought that was just normal. And my father was a child psychiatrist. They've both retired now, but he was a uh, child psychiatrist nearby. So he was at home much more and at home earlier. So he 
was the one who would take us to school and he was home before my mother was and would do things like grocery shopping and often get the dinner ready, which was an interesting sort of gender reversal that helped me see, helped me not feel confined by gender stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And it was my mother, she would just incorporate mathematical language into daily life so that logical thinking was normal. And she also just showed me little tricks and quirky, quirky puzzles and quirky um, fun math situations like, well, they seemed fun to me, which is interesting, drawing graphs, which is like drawing pictures out of math. And so it just was part of life in the way that reading can become part of children's lives because parents read to children. In fact, math can be become part of children's lives because parents automatically just incorporate math. It's not like now we're going to sit down and do some math. <laughs> Um, so it was just it was just part of everything we did. And for example, we had this hilarious family project one time, which was we uh, built a roulette table. You might think this is an odd thing to do with your children. But <laughs> with my father, we got some wood and we made a roulette table and we kind of painted the roulette table. And with my mother, we made a computer program that would generate the numbers and calculate the odds. And that was that was the project. So my mother taught me to program computers when I was very young as well because she worked with computers uh, all the way through her career from a very early point as well so it was very interesting um my father was a kind of he's very intuitive uh, people person he's a psychiatrist very interested in how people how people think and behave and so i'm very interested in that my mother's extremely clear thinking rational logical and i feel like i have incorporated both of those into my career Absolutely. And what, what age did you start playing piano? I was three. So my I have an older sister and she started piano lessons and I was very frustrated. I actually, I feel like I spent most of my childhood being really frustrated that I wasn't old enough to do things yet. <laughs> and so this always drove me because I really wanted to do the things that the older children were doing. And when I was three, no one would teach me the piano because I was too small. And it was really frustrating. So I just kind of stole my sister's music and plonked myself at the piano and played it anyway. And finally, when I was five, my parents found a teacher who would teach me when everyone else said I was still too small. And in fact, she, she said she would have taught me when I was three anyway, but we didn't find her till I was five. So I actually started lessons when I was five. When I was three, I had to resort to playing the violin. That was the only thing that someone would teach me. But I really wanted to play the piano. How, now looking back, how do you feel the music influenced your other work? And I love the way you've weaved these through your, basically your entire life. But now, that you, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Um, m music was really important to me because it was something that, that I could, that was very personal to me and that I could used to express myself and where I didn't have to be constrained by really anything. So I always found lessons at school and the whole of school really frustrating because there were rules, it was very arbitrary and uh, there was something very rigid. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, uh, it was too structured and it was too confining and you had to sit there and do these things and you couldn't explore. And I, I take this very much to heart when I'm thinking about how education should be because I could I think I could have gone off the rails because I was so frustrated mm -hmm. if I hadn't had music as something that that satisfied all those creative and individual urges so I can see how people really 
don't get on well at school if they feel frustrated by being constrained in those ways. I was just very fortunate that my parents gave me this opportunity and that I had good music teachers so that all the time I was frustrated at school, all I had to do was get through the lessons and then I could go home and practice the piano and play music and do things where there were no limits and where I could not feel confined by really anything. And this was particularly important, I think, when I was moving up through high school and I was, in fact, very good at math. And I was so frustrated by classes because the classes were so unimaginative and and um, we just had to pass tests and we had to wait for everyone in the class to understand something. But with piano, I didn't have to wait for anyone. I could practice as much as I wanted, get better and better and play music that was so beautiful and so satisfying. So a lot of children who are good at math, they do other math outside school time in high school. They read math books or they do math problems or they go to math clubs or they do math competitions. I didn't do any of those things. All the things I did outside of class, it was all music. I played the piano, I played the violin and I sang. So I played chamber music, I played in orchestras, I sang in choirs. It really was all of my life outside math, but I still knew I wanted to do math uh, as my career. That's so fascinating. So you were frustrated in school and you're thinking without the music that quite possibly you may have not, um, are you saying, kept on the on that track? I mean, I, I assume you excelled in all your classes all through <laughs> high school. Yeah, I think I might have. I could see I'm basically a law abiding citizen. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I'd have become a really uh, badly behaved person but it was very close sometimes where I was so frustrated and I if I hadn't had a way to express my I can see how if you don't have any way to express yourself you can get so bottled up that it can turn into things like um, rebelling or or refusing to do anything that you're supposed to do or getting mad at people or having some kind of uh, adolescent meltdown I can see why it's so frustrating absolutely and what you're saying about making math fun um, it's so true, and I love that you're creating curriculums with, are you doing elementary schools too? Because, you know, for, with math, right, it's like the language, if you don't get it right in the beginning, then it's so hard to catch up. Um, go ahead. Yeah, that's right, and I am I am doing things at all levels, and I think that the the crucial age is is kind of middle school, because in elementary school, it's still like play. There's a lot of math that's done like play. It's when things start getting a little bit harder. And sometimes teachers, it, it really depends. It's the luck of the draw, what kind of teacher you have. Because some elementary school teachers are not that comfortable with math. But everyone, if everyone has to teach everything, then when it gets more advanced than just adding things together, then if the teacher becomes uncomfortable with it, then the children are likely to become uncomfortable with it as well. Mm -hmm. And then that's when it's, there's a danger that it will all be taught as just algorithms to repeat over and over again and things to memorize, because maybe that's also how the teacher learned how to do it. And at that point, it's not, it doesn't become fun for students who don't like doing that. Some people like the algorithms and they can get them right. And other ones want to see what's going on and want to experiment and want to create things. And those are often the children who get lost at that point and find it very difficult ever to catch up again. Yes. Absolutely. And so, and I know this is a really broad question, but what advice do you have for parents in elementary and middle school to make sure that their children end up you know, like, not everyone will love it, but enjoying math. I think it's important not to transmit your own fear of math. 
Because if you if you tell your children that you're afraid of math or that you're bad of math, it does two things. One is that you transmit fear to your children because I mean that's a that's a sensible thing for to happen with children. If a parent is afraid of something, then it's natural for a child to be afraid of it because you're supposed to learn what the dangers in the world are. So for example, I got fear of dogs from my mother hmm. because she's afraid of dogs, so I'm afraid of dogs. And uh, if someone is afraid of math, then that is likely to be passed on to their children. There's actually been some research done about this. But the other thing is that if you tell your children that you're bad at math, then it kind of makes them feel like it's okay to be bad at math. Oh, it's all right. You can be, you, my parents are bad at math, so it doesn't matter if I'm bad at math. And those two things together can just mean that people give up on math. Whereas if, if parents genuinely realize it's important not to be afraid of math, then parents should try to genuinely feel curious about math themselves. And that's why I've been writing books and making videos and trying to make lots of resources available so that people can rediscover or possibly discover for the first time a curiosity about math. And the thing is that you don't have to be good at it and you don't have to be able to do it in order to be curious about it. And I think that's what's important, being curious and wanting to know so that even if there's a question you can't answer or you don't know how to do something, then you don't have to feel stupid that you don't know it. If you're curious about it, just like there are, there are so many things in the world that we don't know, we don't have to feel bad about it. We can just be curious to discover it. And I think that that's a good starting point for discovering it with your children. So people get afraid because they can't help their children with their homework. But then if you can discover it all together, then I think that would that's better than just going, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of it. I'm bad at math. Such great advice, and which leads us to your book, How to Bake Pie. So tell us, um, when, did, when do you remember when this idea happened, and when did your love for cooking evolve? It was a very gradual thing over a long time. I've always enjoyed explaining math to other people. And my piano teacher, who was a really wonderful teacher, she always instilled in me the idea that education is a really important thing to do in terms of sharing what you know, that whatever you know, it's important to share it with other people. And I always helped my friends at school understand math. So I would always enjoy explaining concepts to people if they didn't understand it. And then in university, I would I would help if, if, I mean, there were things I didn't understand and then people would help me and then I would help other people understand. So it was always a big part of my life, helping people understand things. And I always knew I wanted to go into education. So when I knew I wanted to be a mathematician, being in education was definitely part of that. So I was developing ways to explain math all the way through my life. I started teaching math at the University of Cambridge, where I didn't really have to do anything creative or uh, ingenious to teach. I just delivered material and they drank it all in. It was later when I was teaching huge classes at the University of Sheffield with maybe 150 or 200 students. You have to be very creative to make that interesting because otherwise you're just a person standing at the front and it mm. might as well be a video. And I had started making math videos and so I imposed this standard on myself where I said this class, whatever class I'm teaching, there has to be something in it that means it's more than a video so that there is some point to everybody being there rather than they could have just watched a video. And so that's when I started doing a lot more demonstrations and being very interactive and, and responding to students and getting them to do unusual things, uh, activities in class. And I always told anecdotes from normal life 
to demonstrate mathematical points because I'm very sure that if you don't relate math to anything in life, and I don't mean apply it to life, I mean relate the ideas to ideas in life, then as soon as the students leave the classroom, they kind of turn their math brain off and it never gets turned on again until they're in the math classroom again. And then they get the idea that math is just something that happens in a math classroom. Whereas if you relate it to things in the world around you, then every time the students see those things in the world around you, it'll trigger a little recollection, hopefully, of the class. So if I relate it to cookies, if I talk about them something to do with cookies, then every time they see a cookie, maybe it will just remind them and then it, it won't be a hard cutoff between math brain and non-math brain, but then it'll start to filter through. And I discovered that every time I related it to food, everyone perked up especially much, and I love food, and I discovered I could d explain practically any math concept using some story of food because food involves taking ingredients and putting them together and making something delicious, which is kind of all that math is. It's just that in math, the ingredients are ideas rather than, than edible ingredients. And so that's how the idea for the whole book started. And then it turned into a book because I realized I had so many of these stories stored up in my head that I'd been using over the years that it might as well become a book and reach more people than just the people in my classroom. And and um, also, it's not it's not like a textbook, although I'm now using it like a textbook, but it's the kind of thing, the kind of conversations I have with people at parties, actually, because I love parties and I love talking to people and I love talking about my work because it's what I love. And it might seem unusual that you can talk about math to people at parties, but for many years I've been telling people about my work in very non-technical terms at parties. And so I've practiced these anecdotes and this storytelling to non-mathematicians for a long time. I love that. Your students are so lucky, and I'm so glad you're out there creating um, curriculum to make math fun. And when, what's one of your stories you love to talk about around math and cooking, like when you're at a party? Uh, I love talking, when, especially when I'm at a party, I love talking about drunk baking and the fact that if you understand the principle behind something then you can do it you can you you're in a better position to be able to do it under slightly compromised circumstances like when you're drunk or when you haven't planned to do it and you don't have all the ingredients in your house and this often happens because after after parties or after events people will often pile into my apartment and say oh bake something for us it's kind of one o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. and then we're all a little bit tipsy and I haven't planned it so I haven't got a recipe and I haven't got all the ingredients so I'll just open my cupboards and see what's there and throw something together and if you understand the principle behind how baking works then you can make something up even under those circumstances and it'll be delicious and that's how I think math what math is about. It's about understanding the principles behind things, understanding what really makes things work so that you can apply it in more different situations rather than just having one algorithm and just using the algorithm because if you don't know how it works, then you don't know what to do about it in a slightly different situation. Got it. I love that. And, and your latest book, Beyond Infinity, um, just love daydreaming, thinking about this topic. Unfortunately, I don't uh, approach it from a mathematical perspective. But when I hear people in science and mathematics talking about it, I'm mesmerized. So can you tell us um, what are the, some, of, some of your favorite concepts or maybe three of them to share when you talk about infinity with other people or ones that you've talked about in your book? 
One of the things I love about infinity is there isn't a definitive answer. And because people think often think that math is about getting the right answer. Whereas in higher level math, it becomes, I think, more interesting than that. We're not looking for the right answer. What we're doing is we're creating possible worlds in which different answers are possible. And there are so many different possible answers to what infinity really is, depending on what you want to do with it. So there's one world in which infinity plus one is the same as infinity, because infinity is really big. And there's another world in which infinity plus one is actually bigger than infinity. And we can make sense of that, just like Shakespeare said, forever and a day. Mm. He knew that forever and a day is actually longer than forever. And that's like infinity plus one. And there's another possible world in which infinity really can be what you get when you do one divided by zero. Because, you know, we're not supposed to divide by zero. There's that thing in math like, oh, you can't divide by zero. And sometimes sometimes people think, oh, if you try and divide by zero, then you're doing something really wrong and you obviously don't understand anything about math. But actually, there is another world where we try to make sense of the fact that one divided by zero is something like infinity. Because if you try and divide something by zero, then you kind of never get there. And so that's like infinity. And it's more like a different, whole different shape of universe where infinity is actually a place that you can get to if you divide one by zero. It's like getting in a time machine or something. So that's one of the things I love. It's the fact that we build different worlds in which infinity can mean different things. Uh, another thing I love, always love talking about with infinity is how you can make infinite cookies, which is that you take your cookie dough and you make a giant cookie that uses up half of your dough. And then you make a smaller cookie that uses half the remaining dough. And then you make a smaller cookie that uses half the remaining dough and then half the remaining dough and half the and so on. And of course, you'll always have half of the remaining cookie dough left. So you'll never finish up the cookie dough. And I actually did this recently. I didn't do it with halves because that they get small very quickly. But I did it by making a, one cookie that was a tenth of my cookie dough and then a tenth of the cookie dough and then a tenth of the cookie dough. And that's actually quite fun. It goes on for quite a long time. And I found myself making teeny weeny cookies that were so cute. <laughs> oh, you were... So while you were writing the book about infinity, was did, did it change your perspective? Anything that surprised you? When I was writing the book, it was it was mostly things that I've thought about and talked about a long time, because when with both of the books, I was writing things that that were very deeply in my consciousness and things I've talked about with people a lot so that I've already developed ways of talking about it to non-mathematicians. And then it flows easily because they're things that I am very used to. But every time I think about explaining things or writing things down, I see new connections between math and the world that I hadn't thought about before that that I love because I really think that math is everywhere and I say this and I but I hold good to it because I really do see math in everything and everywhere and every time I am trying to think of how to explain something in an interesting compelling and possibly amusing way to non-mathematicians I realize more and more ways that math helps me understand the world and then I want to share that with everybody. So it's often in the analogies and the connections that I think of. And I think that one one thing that I thought of when I was, was writing the book was about infinite dimensions. And I love thinking about dimensions because I do higher dimensional category theory. And I was thinking about the fact that when we, every time we evaluate something, 
according to different criteria, we're making a, a higher dimensional space, one dimension for each criteria. So if I'm thinking about which thinking about which restaurants I like, for example, I might think about how expensive they are, how good the food is, how good the service is, how crowded they are, what the environment is like, what the music is like, you know, what the decor is like, how comfortable they are. And each one of those is a dimension of how we're thinking about the restaurant. But then sometimes those dimensions get really close to each other and you can't separate them out. So for example, if I'm thinking about what the ambience is like, maybe it's actually related to how expensive the restaurant is. And what I'm expecting is related to how expensive the restaurant is. And so then I realized that that's kind of an, the, because the, the dimensions themselves get really close to each other and I can't separate them out. It's really a kind of infinite dimensional space in there. And I realized that we think in infinite dimensions all the time, even though we don't realize it. And it's one of those things where we're doing really complicated mathematical things without realizing it all the time in our lives. Mm. We are using complicated math, even if we don't realize we're doing it. So we're kind of all mathematicians, really. I love listening to the way you think so rationally. And um, it, it's amazing. Uh, and I'm curious, are you a spiritual person? And if so, how does spirituality influence your work? I am a spiritual person and people often find this surprising because they think math is all about rationality. And the thing is that if you're really rational and you understand how logic works, I think it's clear to me anyway that you have to believe something because you can't use logic to deduce things from nothing. Mm -hmm. If you start with nothing and you use logic, then you'll get nothing. You have to start. Logic says if something is true, then something else is true. So there has to be a starting point somewhere. And to me, that starting point is the things that we believe. And all those things I believe are where my spirituality comes from. Because I'm, I really believe that there, is, there are things that are more powerful than us. And I'm not very specific about what they are. And I think that the problem can come from people thinking that that if you believe in spirituality, then you're believing in some very concrete thing that doesn't exist. For me, it's just this, this very strong sense that there are things more powerful than us. And it's abundantly clear to me because mathematics is so powerful. And because, because music is so overwhelmingly powerful. And the fact that someone can create something, either mathematics or music or art, or these beautiful things that are so overwhelming and that I that we can't ever completely understand or explain and just looking at nature just looking at waves crashing on the on the shore that where does that power come from and we can explain it using science and tides and gravity but where does gravity come from you know where do the laws of physics come from and whatever it is that is the root of that is something spiritual to me because it's something that is beyond what we can understand and I find that it's it's important to accept that there are things beyond what we can understand because I think it's humbling to remember that, that they're so much bigger than us. I think it, it sort of bothers me, the idea of believing that we are the greatest thing and there's nothing greater than us, That's it's very self-centered and I think a little bit arrogant, too arrogant for me anyway. I like, I like the fact that we're just part of something enormous and that enormous thing is where spirituality comes from for me. Hmm. Beautifully said. Um, when you are there daily practices um, or philosophies that have led to your success? Because it's obvious you've always kind of had things that you loved. Um, 
So I think that would make work and study easier. But is there anything else maybe in the way that you were raised that led you um, just to, you know, be able to accomplish so much? Well, uh, thank you. First of all, that's that's very complimentary. What I really believe in, and I, I think about this a lot because I've I've definitely taken things in my own hands. I haven't, I don't go along with stuff. I definitely, I'm very active in doing things the way that I want to. And sometimes that means that I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of the opposite of a laid back person. <laughs> I don't let things wash over me. Um, and what I really believe in is that it's really important to find out what it is that you're good at and then figure out how to use it in the best possible way to contribute to society. That's what I really believe in. And I think that comes from lots of things. It comes from comes from my parents. It comes from the work that my father did helping the some of the most unfortunate children in the world who had the worst start possible in life. It comes from my piano teacher who believed that education is the most important thing that you can do. It comes from the school education I had where there was a big emphasis on community and contributing to the community. And in a way, the thing that was most prized at the school I went to was not academic achievement and not not any kind of achievements that evaluated on paper, but it was really the contribution to the community. And so because that was valued, it was something that I always aspire to and it's still something that I really believe in. So the, 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 the way that I've directed my life is to try and figure out what are my talents and how, how can I best use them to do something useful for the world. And I think it's important for me anyway to know that it's based on what I am good at because deep down I think that the best the most amazing thing that you can do for the world is be a doctor where you're literally saving lives and I just don't think that that was what I was really cut out for and in fact my father who is a doctor he he always dissuaded me from going into medicine he said I wouldn't make it because he said I would never get through all that memorizing that you have to do hmm. and I think it's true and so I think after that because I'm not really cut out for that I think that the the best thing I could do was in education and helping people understand things and then kind of not just in education but what I think of as meta education where I'm trying to help the whole education system become better and because I think among mathematicians I have possibly an unusual ability to explain complicated mathematical concepts to people who aren't already fluent in abstract thinking so to non-mathematicians I realized that in a way that was more a more important contribution for me rather than teaching high level math to grad students or or even research I do believe that the mathematical research I'm doing is important and that's why I'm still doing it but lots of people do mathematical research really a lot of people do it whereas there aren't so many people who are being a public face of mathematics and trying to change improve the public image and public view of math. So I realized that that was a more important thing for me to do. Absolutely. And it's great to hear about the community focus at your school because you hear now there's so much emphasis on tests and scoring and everyone maybe just getting into the same top schools. So I'd love to hear more of your perspective on on the community emphasis um, and other, you know, in, enjoyment versus just, you know, the, the grades, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, the University of Cambridge is a really unusual system. And it's unusual 
in the UK, and I think it's very unusual compared with most American universities, where you, first of all, you only study one subject formally, so I only did math, and your whole degree only depends on some exams you take at the very end of your three years there. So you take some exams before that, but it's really just to check on your progress. So there's no assessment throughout, and there's, there's, there isn't even any informal assessment during the year, each year. So you take exams at the end of each year, but before that, you're just learning things. And so there's a lot of flexibility around what you do. You don't really have to, you don't, you're not forced to show up to anything. You're supposed to take inspiration from everything around you. And I, I really felt that everybody there was interested in doing, doing loads of things for the community. And because there are, there are the colleges that are set up to be small communities within the big community of the university, I really felt that it was encouraged to contribute to that interesting environment. And it wasn't all about grades, it wasn't evaluated, it wasn't kind of you get credit for this, you get credit for this, but you kind of got, uh, it's difficult to explain, but it's like social credit that that no one gave you a grade, but the, but that was what was valued by the community. It was, it was doing things that were beyond what was in the courses. So things like music or, or plays or, or doing things for the people around you that, that, that the community really valued it. And I think that it's difficult to, to know how to set that up from scratch, but if a community values something, then people will aspire to it. Um, and I love the fact that it wasn't for credit. And when I first arrived at the University of Chicago, I was really shocked because I went to this lunchtime recital because I like lunchtime, I like concerts. <laughs> and there was someone in the elevator, there was a student in the elevator who was frantic because she had just discovered that there weren't tickets for the concert and she didn't know how she was going to get credit for going to the concert oh. if she didn't come back with a ticket because wow. she had to go to a certain number of concerts for her music course. Yeah. And I was really, I was really shocked. And now I've got used to it. But you know, if I often if I go to concerts at universities, there'll be a faculty member at the door signing in or handing out credit slips to students so that they can get credit for having gone to the concert, which yeah. I find I still find it quite confusing. And I see what they're trying to do. It's trying to encourage people to go. But uh, somehow it's the wrong way around. Well, um, I know that you kind of stepped off the traditional academic track. Um, I'd love to talk about how, how you did that, the sacrifice you made, and what gave you kind of the courage to, to make your own path. Thank you. I do think... In a way, it's the thing I'm the most proud of. It's not It's not a single achievement. It's not, you know, I wrote a book. It's not, I went on television. It's that I, I really took control of my life and I didn't let my life happen to me. I decided what I wanted to do. I was on this academic career path. I had done all the right things. I'd got all the right grades in school. I went to a really good university. I got my PhD. I did postdocs in different countries. I got tenure. And all of that was what you're supposed to do when you're on an academic career path. And then when I, when I got tenure, it was one of those things where you get tenure and you go, wait, is this what I want, actually? And I was glad I did it, and I'll never regret having done it. But I started realizing that I wanted to do more than that. And I wanted to do something different and that, that the academic career path was good, but it wasn't making the best use of all my abilities. And so I started thinking about how to make the best use of my abilities in order to reach out beyond the university environment and reach the wider world. And so 
I didn't just quit because that would be really dramatic, but I really sat down and I thought about it and I took a very kind of mathematical analytical approach. I wrote this hilarious list of all the things I think I'm good at and I looked at it and I thought thought about how many things were being used in my current career at the time and I thought it wasn't enough. Mm. And so I started trying to dream up how I could make use of more of those things. And I came to the conclusion that the best thing I could do was come back to Chicago because I had been a postdoc in Chicago and I somehow had this feeling that Chicago was a really good place for me to invent my own career and do things the way I wanted to in an unusual way because Chicago is a great city. It's it's big, it has tons of opportunities, but also it's a bit experimental. And I think it's always been like that, just in the way that architecture that, you know, they invented skyscrapers sort of experimentally in Chicago because things were possible and then and then they take them to the coasts. So there's something because because it's not New York, it's not trying to be the greatest city on earth, it kind of tries things out and, and people mm-hmm. are supported, not just just competitive all the time. And I somehow knew because there there are lots of musicians here and it's a environment where I can do music and I I just thought that this was a better place for me to be. I had no idea all of the things that I would be able to do when I, I never dreamt, I never dreamt of being able to teach math at an art school. I never dreamt of of becoming an art, being a commissioned artist myself. I didn't dream that I would be traveling around the world doing outreach and public talks in the way that I'm doing. It was a more of an abstract, I had a feeling that I could do something unusual and and less rigid in Chicago. And so I carefully built my way up to being able to step off that career. And it really started with writing my first book. And when I got when when I got a really nice book deal for the first book, I started feeling confident that it might work. And I still I stepped off it. I was very sensible. I've been my parents brought me up to be very sensible mm-hmm. and to be stable and to plan for the future. Mm-hmm. And so it was still a big step, but I didn't I made sure I had backup plans and that there was enough evidence that that things were going to work out before. So I sort of took leave. I went on I went on sabbatical and then I took unpaid leave. And then finally, when I found the job at the School of the Art Institute, it was amazing. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this so well that they want to keep me. And fortunately, they did want to keep me. And I love being there and they love me being there. And so as a basis for all the other things I do, it's great. It's a kind of central basis. And then all sorts of other things have been branching out thanks to that amazing opportunity. So then finally, last summer, I finally quit my job formally in the UK. And uh, everything has been kind of going amazingly since then. But when I think about it, when I first when I first moved to sh- back to Chicago in 2013, I had a one-year teaching position at the University of Chicago. It was only one year. And I was really unsure about what was going to happen after that one year. But I took the leap and I thought, well, I'll, I have one year to try and establish myself in Chicago and make something work. And I did. And uh, I'm, I'm very... I'm really proud of myself because I could have just stayed in my job in England where I was quite unhappy actually hmm. and I, I was unhappy, I was unfulfilled, I I didn't feel I was making a good contribution to society and and also my personal life was unfulfilled and so, but I could have just stayed there thinking oh it's a secure job, I have great benefits, I've got a really good pension, things like that that are not, are not very exciting sounding. Be, you can kind of think if if you're 
if you're a sensible person, you think, oh, well, this is a really secure job, I should keep that. Um, so I think that I, I found a really good way to move off that gradually without, without really risking too much. Uh, and I'm glad that I have my, my parents were supportive. I have lots of friends who were encouraging me. And some people were kind of horrified Right. Because you work so hard to get tenure, no one ever leaves tenure. I don't, I don't really know anyone who's left tenure. But I'm proud of myself for taking that step and not just letting life happen to me. Absolutely. I can so understand um, why that was such a brave move. And it was a sensible risk. But like you said, most people don't do it because traditionally that's just not what you do. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for sharing that. And you are such an inspiration I've, uh, I've printed out your kind of bio uh, for a book I share with my daughter as she grows up on paths that are possible. And you've just made such a beautiful, like you say, portfolio career. Um, I have so much respect for the work you're doing. Thank you for, for uh, being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me.